The scripture reading today is from Galatians 3, verses 6 through 14. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might become to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So I want to begin talking about a concept that, in many ways, we've considered before at First City blessing. So the concept of blessing in scripture is multifaceted, but really at the heart of blessing is this idea to have favor or to carry favor. To be blessed is to have someone look on you maybe with love or or to work circumstances for your good. Like parents, when you ask someone to babysit your kids, you're looking for favor, right? If you ask someone to borrow a cup of sugar, you're asking someone to show favor, When you go into a job interview, you want that employer to show you favor and offer the job. Guys, when we ask a gal to marry us, we want her to show favor on us by saying yes. When you get pulled over by the police, you want them to show you favor by not giving you a ticket, correct? Whatever it may be, we long for, we want blessing, we want favor. And the thing we need to understand about blessing in scripture is that it is beyond just getting favors done for us or maybe some breaks going our way. The blessing that the Bible speaks of is to experience such favor that this becomes true of you, that your identity is completely grounded. You know who exactly who you are. You know that you are seen and you are loved. Favor that creates a sense of stability in your soul, a sense of confidence and trust Favor that creates conditions for you to be healthy emotionally and spiritually. Favor that will open you up to the world and allow you to run at life with a sense of meaning and purpose and have a moral center. Favor that allows you to endure hardships because you know that no matter what may come, things will work out for your good. That what is broken will be made right. This is the kind of favor that brings joy and peace and love. We want that kind of favor. We want that kind of blessing. And look, for all our talk of personal autonomy and self-reliance, we know deep down we are not sufficient in and of ourselves for the task of life. We all know we need favor. We're not completely independent. We need help. We need others. So we seek it. We seek favor from others. We seek it from friends and family and coworkers. We seek favor from systems such as the government or work or even the church. Look, whether you believe the Bible or not, 
I guarantee that if you and I were to sit down and have a conversation, an open and honest conversation, we could find places where both of us were showing that we desire favor and that we hope for favor and we're seeking favor because we'd both intuitively know that blessing and favor is the difference between a life of joy and satisfaction and beauty and depth and stability and emotional and spiritual health and a life of despair and dissatisfaction and shallowness and self-doubt and insecurity and a lack of purpose and a lack of identity. Like, look, some of you have been so deprived of favor from people that you walk around just defeated. Such deprived of such favor in life that you feel like there is no hope. Some of you know all too well what I'm talking about. And so the question for us is not if we're seeking favor, because we all are seeking favor. The question is, whom are we seeking favor from, and how are we seeking it? Whose favor do we believe will give us an identity and a sense of stability and bring spiritual and emotional health and give us meaning and purpose? And how are we going about trying to get that favor? The who and the how make all the difference. And so in our passage this morning, we see the Apostle Paul speaking of blessing and favor and who it comes from and how is it experienced. And here's really the big idea that I want us to all recognize this morning. Favor comes through faith, not performance. Favor comes through faith, not performance. So let's turn our attention. Sorry, I'm messing with my cord here. <laughs> let's turn our attention to this passage of scripture and see how favor comes through faith and not performance. How many of you are familiar with this expression? To be hoist on your own petard. Anybody, anybody hear of that expression? Okay, it, it may be one that you've maybe heard in passing, but not exactly sure. And that sounds like a really weird thing, a really bad thing to have happen to you. So the idea is to be blown up by your own bomb. So a petard was a medieval bomb that was basically this metal box or maybe even a barrel that was packed with gunpowder and would be attached to like a gate or a wall in order to try to bring it down. And it would have a fuse. And if you were the one that put the petard on the wall and lit the fuse, you hoped that you could get away from the blast to radius before the fuse lit. Sometimes you didn't make it. And you know what would happen to you? The blast radius would lift you up off the ground and send you flying. You would be hoisted up, blown away by your own bomb. Well, here in Galatians 6 through 14, the Apostle Paul is going to hoist his opponents by their own petard. Meaning, he is going to take the very arguments they are trying to make from the scriptures, and he's going to turn it around, and he's going to blast through their very arguments. So in these verses we get multiple references to the Old Testament. And the reason is, is because there was no doubt that Paul's opponents were taking the Old Testament and trying to use it to support their position. And so Paul is going to say, okay, you want to use the Old Testament? Let's use the Old Testament and see what God's word in the Old Testament has to say. And so he brings these statements, he brings these verses from the Old Testament, these ideas to bear in the argument. So after making a series of rhetorical questions in verses two through five that we saw last week, and all of those highlight the fact that God has shown favor and blessing to the Galatians, not through their performance, but through faith. So after making that point, 
Paul is going to continue his point by drawing in Abraham. This is what we read in verses 6 and 7. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So why bring in Abraham? Well, Abraham loomed large within the Jewish faith. He was, the, he was the patriarch. He's the father of the Jewish nation. Abraham was the one that God came to and showed favor towards. God made promises. Hey, I'm going to make of you a great nation. You are going to have descendants. And those descendants God entered into a covenant with. It was the descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel, that God said, I am going to be your God. You are going to be my people. To be a child or a descendant of Abraham was to belong to the favored people of God. So you wanted to be a child of Abraham. You wanted to belong to Abraham because that meant you belonged to God. So to put it another way, association with Abraham put you in the right spiritually. It gave you spiritual street cred, so to speak. If you could claim Abraham as your father, if you could show you were in alignment with Abraham, then you had the upper hand to show, hey, I'm right with God. No doubt this is why Paul opponents were using Abraham and trying to say, hey, we're associated with Abraham. We see the exact same thing happen in John 8 when the Pharisees and scribes were coming at Jesus and they were trying to sort of dig in and say, hey, we're in the right. They said, hey, we're children of Abraham. So two questions before us then. One, how exactly does one become a child of Abraham? And perhaps even more fundamental, how did Abraham become favored of God in the first place? Answering those two questions are very, very important. So to answer the first question, this is what the Judaism of the day taught. That in order to become a child of Abraham, one had to be circumcised and follow the law. And they largely drew this from Genesis 17.10. This is God's words to Abraham after he gives him the, after he gives him circumcision. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, quick side note here. The reason only males were circumcised is way beyond the scope of this sermon. So we're not going to get into that detail. But for, for women too, they had to keep the law. Even though circumcision wasn't a part of what they did, they still had to keep the law. So right here, the, the Judaizers, the, the, the opponents of Paul would say, look, right here, God says you have to be circumcised. And so if the Gentiles wanted to be a part of the covenant people of God, well, then they needed to be circumcised. You want to be a child of Abraham? You need to be circumcised and you need to keep the law. The Judaism of the day also taught that the reason Abraham was righteous and the reason he was shown favor by God is because he more or less earned it. So important text Jewish texts of the first century, such as the Aramaic Targums and the book of Sirach and the book of Maccabees. All of these taught important Jewish doctrine of the day. And they all said, Abraham, yes, he had faith, but it was not solely Abraham's faith that caused God to count him as righteous. In fact, if you look in the book of Genesis, Abraham did some great things. And then there was a tradition that Abraham endured 10 tests in order to prove himself righteous before God. And so what the Jewish leaders of the day believed is that Abraham's righteousness, Abraham, the favor that Abraham received from God was not solely faith, but faith plus 
is performance. Faith plus favor earned. And really, here's the hinge point. Earned favor. For Abraham to receive favor and to be counted as righteousness, he had to prove himself. So they taught. It follows then to be a child of Abraham, to have the favor of God like Abraham had the favor of God. One has to do what Abraham did. Keep the law. Perform. Be righteous. One has to faithfully follow the Lord in a particular way. Like father, like son and daughter. But to refute this false teaching, the Apostle Paul goes back to the Old Testament to show that these teachers got the favor of God all wrong. That they were completely missing the story of Abraham and what was at the heart of it. So in verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Paul is quoting Genesis 15. And this is what we know about the context of Genesis 15. God is declaring his promise to Abraham. That he's going to give him not only a son, but he's going to give him uncountable descendants. This is from Genesis 15, verses 5 and 6. And he, meaning God, brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God declares his promise. Abraham believes God. And that belief, that faith, is counted to Abraham as righteousness. He believes. He has faith. What's missing from this picture? The law, very good. Works. Performance. Earning. Did Abraham do anything? He believed. He didn't earn God's favor. He didn't earn righteousness. He believed God's promises. And if we go back to Genesis 12, if you go back just a few chapters earlier, where God first makes these promises to Abraham, God comes to Abraham and says, hey, follow me. Leave the land that you you are a part of and follow me and I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And through you, all the nations will be blessed. Had Abraham done anything to receive God coming or to, to warrant God coming to him? Well, we don't know much about Abraham before Genesis 12. All we know, we know about his father, a few of his family members, and we know that he came from a city and a place called Ur. What do we know about Ur from history? Well, what we know about Ur is that there was a giant temple to the goddess Nana, who was the goddess of the moon. That the people of Ur worshipped this goddess. And we also know from Joshua 24 too that Abraham's dad worshipped false gods. So what we're led to believe is this. Before God called Abraham, he was worshipping a false god. Abraham was not following the Lord. But God came to him. God came to him in spite of his rebellion, in spite of his idol worship, and in spite of chasing after false gods, God comes to him and says, Abraham, I want you to follow me. Did Abraham earn that? No, all of grace. Abraham hadn't done a thing to earn God's favor, and yet here God comes with his grace, making promises that Abraham then receives by faith. From beginning to end, the story of Abraham is one of not earned favor, but received favor. Not earned righteousness, but received righteousness. 
Abraham came with hands open, knowing there is no way I can be righteous through my works. There's no way that I deserve this favor from God, but I'm going to receive it. I'm going to believe what God has promised. That is how he was made righteous, through faith. He has faith in God's promises. And furthermore, Abraham is counted righteous before he is even circumcised. It isn't until Genesis 17 that Abraham is circumcised. In other words, righteousness has nothing to do with circumcision. Nothing. Paul implies this point in Galatians, but then in Romans, he makes the point directly. This is what we read in Romans 4. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. They completely missed the point Paul is saying. Circumcision, it doesn't make you righteous. It points to the righteousness that you already have by faith. They were getting it completely backwards. They were missing the story of Abraham is a story of faith, a story of righteousness bestowed, favor bestowed, not earned. The promise first came as grace. He was declared righteous by believing those promises. And look, faith has always been, the cent- has always been central in the plan of God, Old Testament and New Testament alike. And this is what Paul is pointing out. He's dismantling their misuse of the Old Testament to show no Abraham was a man of faith, made righteous by faith. We're children of Abraham through faith, made righteous through faith. And then in this stunning statement in Galatians 3, 8, Paul says this, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So when God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12, and says, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation, and then through you, all the nations, everybody else is going to be blessed. Paul says God was preaching the gospel to Abraham. But there's nothing in there about Jesus, right? How is he preaching the gospel? Let's look a little closely. There's actually much about Jesus in here. This statement, in you shall all the nations be blessed, is a reference to the fact that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, is going to come through the people of Israel, a descendant of Abraham. We're going to see this next week in Galatians 3.16. An offspring of Abraham is going to be the Messiah, and this is Christ. God was promising right here to Abraham, a Messiah is going to come, and he's going to bless all peoples. And so the gospel is proclaimed to Abraham. Paul draws a straight line from the promise given to Abraham right to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What this means is the same message of faith has been running all throughout scripture. But though Abraham didn't fully know all what that meant, he believes God. He, He has faith. He takes hold of what he didn't deserve and what he could never accomplish on his own. He's in a posture of receiving, and this is how he experiences favor, received, not earned. This is what makes him righteous, received, not earned. And that truth 
though it was veiled when it was declared to Abraham, has now been fully revealed in the person and work of Christ. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. And what was true of Abraham is true of his children. Like father, like son. Like those of you that grew up in the church, you remember that Father Abraham song? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Then it turns into like Christian hokey pokey. Um, <laughs> profound truth though in that song. It's really, it's really sad that it is kind of the Christian hokey pokey because it is profound truth in that song. That just like Abraham is made righteous by faith, we are made righteous by faith through faith in Jesus Christ. As verse nine tells us, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Our father Abraham gave us a model of faith and shows us how righteousness comes to us. Like father, like son. The favor of God comes not because of anything we have done. We have been rebellious sinners, but because of God's rich grace. We are declared righteous. We experience the same blessing as Abraham. We are his descendants through faith. So again, if we ask the question, how exactly does one become a child of Abraham? By grace through faith. How did Abraham become favored of God? By grace through faith. How do we become favored of God? By grace through faith. Paul is dismantling the notion of performance. Dismantling that the notion of performance is in the Old Testament. The same faith that we find in Jesus Christ has its origin all the way back to Abraham. Moving from Abraham, Paul turns his attention to the law and to why no one can rely on the works of the law to be righteous and earn favor with God. This is what he writes in verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law and do them. So here he's quoting from Deuteronomy 27. And in the context of Deuteronomy 27, God's people are rehearsing both the blessings and the curses of the law. And it's actually this incredible picture. So half the people of God are on one mountain and half are on the other. And they're just declaring all the blessings and all the cursing. So there's this incredible like auditorial moment where those truths are being just, they're resonating through their minds and their hearts. And Paul is reminding the church and he's pulling out Old Testament truth that if you do not keep all of the law, Judgment and punishment and curse come. You see, at the heart of the law is the moral will of God. The standard of right and wrong and good and evil and righteousness and unrighteousness, what is just, what is unjust. And that he establishes those things based in his own character. And while the the specific law code was given to Israel in particular, that moral code, we're all obligated to follow it. We're all under the same standard of good and evil and righteousness and unrighteousness and just and unjust that God has established. We're to follow what God says is good and we're to turn our back on what God says is evil. And if we don't want the curse of judgment and punishment to come, then we have to follow everything God says. We have to follow all of it. And herein lies the problem. Because we don't. 
we don't follow all of it. We don't perfectly keep it. The standard, the expectation is complete obedience. But because God is the standard, because God is perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly good, perfectly just, perfectly true, anything less than perfection falls short of his glory. And that's the problem. We fall short. We sin. We don't keep the law. We break it. None of us perfectly keeps the moral will of God. In fact, we have rebelled against it. Look, we're not like the poor person who inadvertently breaks the tax law because they don't understand it. Oops, mistake. No, we're the person who fully understands it and says, you know what, I'm not doing this, I don't care. We have rebelled against God. Our hearts in and of ourselves are turned. They're turned away from God. There is none that seek after God. There's none that are righteous. We're a bunch of stubborn sheep that have gone astray. We're all doing our own thing, as scripture tells us. Because we don't perfectly keep the law, because we can't, what is on the other end of our performance? Curse. This is what Paul is drawing their attention to. He's saying, look, you want to find righteousness and favor through the law? Okay, fine. Be perfect. Oh, you can't? Well, then guess what? Curse. In other words, you're not going to find righteousness through your performance because you can't. All you're going to find is judgment and a curse when you try to perform. Now, some of you may think, well, hey, wait a minute. I'm actually pretty good. I think I'm a pretty good person. Like, like I try really hard to be a good person. Like, I don't lie, and I don't cheat people, and I work hard, and I try to help other people, and I'm faithful to my spouse, and I pay my taxes, and I'm a good neighbor to the people that live in my neighborhood. Okay, good. I'm glad. You should be. But let me ask you, have you ever gotten so angry that you wanted to break something? Or maybe you cursed under your breath or said something bad about someone under your breath? Have you ever felt rage in your heart that like, oh, if I could just... Hey, guess what? Jesus tells you you're guilty of murder. Have you ever looked at another man or another woman and, and desired that person who wasn't your spouse? Hey, Jesus says you're guilty of lust. Hey, why do you work so hard? So others will be impressed with you? So that you can have a lot of money and comforts? Hey, you're an idolater. Hey, let me ask you this. Does God have complete place in your heart? Do you do all things for his glory? Are you about his agenda? Like, what if, what if Jesus came and did the same thing to you that he did to the rich young ruler? And he said, hey, look, I know you, you follow all these rules and you're a good person, but I want you to sell everything, drop your agenda, drop your plan for your life, and come follow me. Would you be like, okay, Jesus? Like, the point in that passage is because that rich young, it didn't matter that that rich young man did all this good stuff, the fact that Jesus didn't have central place in his heart showed that he actually wasn't keeping the law. Because it's not just about outward actions, it's our heart. So you may be pretty good in a lot of areas, but if you are not utterly and totally devoted to the Lord, you're guilty. You've broken the law. 
Because here's what else happens. You start to cherry pick. You start to decide which, which rules, which law you can keep and which ones you can't. And isn't it funny how the ones you can't, you sort of start to minimize. Oh, it's not that big a deal. No, it's really important to be perfect in these things. And I'll sort of shine my merit badge on these things because I can do these things. But the things I can't, well, let's, let's just really not talk about that. Oh, let's just kind of minimize that. That's not that big a deal. So we cherry pick and we betray that we know we can't perform perfectly. We show that we're unable to keep the law. And here's what's fascinating. We come, sort of become spiritually schizophrenic in one sense because we're driven to perform. We have the sense that we want to earn in our pride, but then we'll also recognize that we can't. And so we'll, we'll kind of pull away from this idea of performance. And so performance, minimize. Performance, minimize. Is that a recipe for righteousness and favor? No. Is that a recipe for life? No. Is that a recipe for freedom? No. Performance leads to curse. So this raises a question. Does this mean there's something wrong with the law? Absolutely not. And again, we'll see this next week. The law actually is intended to show us we can't perform. The law, the moral law of God is held up to show us, hey, we're broken, rebellious sinners and we need salvation. We need grace. We need righteousness given to us. We can't earn it. The law highlights what we're unable to do. The law was never intended to be the thing that we perform. We'll see this next week. The law shows us our sinful hearts. The law shows us that we're under a curse. The law drives us away from performance as a means of righteousness and favor. So I wonder, and let, let, me, let me just drop into experience here just, just briefly. I wonder how many of you sort of feel the curse? Like that, that sense when you fail, the sense of guilt and maybe the fear and the insecurity and the instability when those things reverberate in your soul, hey, that, that's an echo of the curse. That's pointing to the fact that we're under judgment, that, that, that we deserve God's judgment, that we've broken God's law. What do you do with those feelings? Like, how, what do you do with that sense of guilt and that sense of insecurity? Do, do you just try harder? Do you think, man, if I perform better the next time, those things will go away? Do you believe that if you just get enough people to show you favor, get enough people to like you, that those feelings are going to go away? Then the question I would have for you is, what's enough? Because we already recognize that you can't do it perfectly. And that if you can't do it perfectly, what you end up doing is minimizing. And then what do you do? You start bringing down the, st- the, the standard of righteousness and good. You start minimizing what is actually true and good and just and beautiful. And here's something else. For those of you that care deeply about morality, whether you're a Christ follower and religious or you're irreligious, do you recognize that good works done for the purpose, to whatever degree of performing and trying to earn favor, actually rob the the morality of those actions? Here's what I mean. If I serve my wife because I want my wife to show favor to me, 
I want to get something from her. While I might have done good, and that thing is good, my motive was selfish. My motive wasn't for her good regardless. It was for what I got out of it. And over and over and over, when we're driven by performance, when we're driven to gain favor from people or from God, our motives become shot through with selfishness. And so we have a problem, even with our moral actions, when we're driven by performance. And so again, let me ask you, what do you do when you feel that curse? What do you do when your sense of identity and stability and certainty and trust are shaken? What do you do when that sense of joy and peace is shaken? If you're driving yourself to more performance, you're setting yourself up for failure. You're setting yourself up to perform in a way you can never do. Because even the best people are fickle. Like, look, if you're trying to get favor from people, you know how that goes. They're fickle. One day it might be enough, and the next day it's not. Who you are seeking favor from and how you do it matters. And so the path to true favor, the path to true righteousness, is not through performance. Here's another angle. Another problem that we run into is when we try to balance faith and performance, when we try to mingle these two things together as a mean to be righteous and to gain favor with God or maybe with other people. It doesn't work because they're two opposite systems. They're two opposite ways of living. This is the point Paul makes in verses 11 and 12. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Again, Paul is quoting Old Testament texts. In verse 11, he quotes Habakkuk 2.4. And in the context of Habakkuk, God is contrasting the pride of those who, who think that they can earn and those who think that they have control with those who live by faith. And he is, once again, Paul is pointing out here that the truth that the righteous live by faith is in the Old Testament, that this is the system. Then in verse 12, he quotes Leviticus 18.5, which makes this point that if you want to experience life, if you want to experience blessing and favor and righteousness from the law, you have to do it. You have to live by it. So he's sort of reinforcing the point he made before. But, but here's the contrast. Those who live by faith and those who live by doing. Living by faith. So what is life? Faith takes you into actions, takes you into righteousness, takes you into glorifying God, yes. But living by faith and living by performance are two opposite things. And for us to try to live motivated by both creates problems. It's like trying to stand on a dock and stand in the boat, and as the boat is going and you're going to try to stand on both of them, what's going to happen to you? You're going to fall in the water. And I'm afraid that too many of us, we're spiritually wet in a mess because we're trying to live by faith and by our performance at the same time. And we get nowhere. We just become a mess. We become weak in our faith. We become discouraged. We, we miss out on the freedom that God has for us. You see, we, we, we may think, okay, I, I'm, I'm not saved by my works. I know that. 
But then functionally, the way you live, whenever you sin or whenever things go bad, here's what you do. I got to do enough good things in order to get back in God's favor. I know God loves me, but I got to get him to like me. So I need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. I need to share the gospel more. I need to give more. I need to just do all of these things that I think God is going to like me for. And you know what you do? You fall in the water because you begin to realize you can't do enough. And you get frustrated and you get discouraged. And then you end up not doing anything. Faith and performance are two opposite ways of living. Look for others. And I've had a number of, it's been interesting, the number of conversations I've had with people along these lines. Like you don't believe works save you, and you, you nail that, you got that. But you still have this tendency to perform for people because their favor matters. And here's the problem with that too. You've not allowed the favor of God, the righteousness that you have in Christ, so transform your life and control your life that you no longer need to seek the performance of people. You're still in bondage to performance. You haven't been set free from that performance mentality and Christ wants to set you free. Christ says, my favor, the righteousness you have through faith sets you free from having to try to impress people and perform for people. It sets you free to love them. It sets you free that when you sin, when you fall short, you run and find grace. You don't run to performance. And so friend, if you find yourself locked in a performance mentality towards other people, I want to encourage you, run to Christ, run to grace, run to the favor you have in God and let that favor transform you. Let the greater favor set you free from seeking lesser favor. This great story of the reformer Martin Luther, he had been reading in scripture and and he came across this verse in Habakkuk that says the righteous will live by faith and yet he was still locked in this performance mentality. He thought God hated him. He thought he had to perform. And so when he takes a trip to Rome, he, like many pilgrims to Rome, ascends the steps of this church, the church of St. John Lateran. And it was believed that if you climb these steps and on every step you said a, a particular prayer and kiss the step, that you would lose so many years in, in purgatory or that you would gain a certain amount of favor with God. And so, so Luther is going up these steps, step at a time, step at a time, step at a time. And while he's doing it, what he says is that in a moment, this verse came to his mind, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And he got up off those stairs and he said, I'm done with this. And he goes back And that verse becomes the defining verse of his life. I wonder how many of you are on those steps trying to earn favor with God, trying to earn favor with other people. Step by step, performance by performance, all the while the word of God says to you, the righteous will live by faith. All the while Christ is saying, get off those steps and come live with me in freedom. Oh, this is a great hope for us, church. Let us stop trying to live by our performance and live by faith. But we need to be honest here. 
We see this great call to faith, but we cannot overlook that we're guilty of breaking God's law. We, we rightfully live under a curse and, and simply saying, okay, I'll go live by faith now isn't enough. The curse needs to be dealt with. And here's the good news of the gospel in verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The incredible counterintuitive love of God. See, here's how we operate. In our way of thinking, favor comes through performance. I, I earn favor from other people, and so if I want to keep favor, I keep performing. And so favor comes from favor. Favor builds on favor. But what the gospel says is no, favor actually comes out of curse. It is in that moment, in that place where you have been cursed because of your sin, that God shows his favor to you. And that Jesus Christ takes that curse upon himself. He was strung up on a Roman cross, the most shameful way to die. And he takes the wrath of God for your sin and for mine so that we can be set free. So the curse is removed so that we have life, so that we are accepted as a child of God. Your performance didn't do that. Christ's performance did that. Your performance doesn't make you righteous. Christ's performance makes you righteous. And it is a gift to you that you receive by faith. How are you going to try to undo the curse? How are you going to try to undo the curse of your failed performance? Is it through more performance? Are you going to try to cover it over through more performance and trying to get people to show you favor? Or are you going to rest in the favor and righteousness that Christ gives you through faith? Oh, the gospel holds out something so much greater to you. The gospel holds out freedom to you. And that freedom we take hold of by faith. And here's the good news, too, of the gospel. What is one of the best ways that you can be shown favor? Like, like think of this, like when you were a kid, maybe you wrote to the president, or maybe you wrote to a famous sport, sports star, your favorite sports star, and you got a letter back from him. And it was even signed. Maybe they really signed it, but it was signed. And you thought, this is the coolest thing ever. I have a signed picture of the president. I have a signed picture of Michael Jordan. You know what would be better than that? If the president showed up to your house and said, hey, guess what? I'm going to live with you. Or Michael Jordan moved in and said, hey, guess what? We're roommates. The promised spirit of God. Here's how you know you have God's favor. His spirit has taken up residence in you. You can't get much better favor than that. That God says, hey, guess what? I'm going to dwell with you. We are going to be roommates for eternity. My power, my presence, my love, my grace are with you always. That's how much favor you have. Not through your performance, through faith, through God's incredible grace. Church, this is the kind of favor that completely grounds your identity and tells you exactly who you are and says you're seen and you're loved. This is the kind of favor that creates stability and confidence and trust in your soul. This is the kind of favor that creates conditions for emotional and spiritual health. This is the kind of favor that opens you up to the world and gives you meaning and purpose and a true sense of what it means to walk in godliness. This is the kind of favor that allows you to endure hardship because come what may, you know the favor of God rests on you and that favor means all things work together for good and that one day he is going to restore everything 
That is the favor that Christ purchased. This is the kind of favor that brings true joy and peace and love. And this is the kind of favor that sets you free to walk in love. And so when you do those moral actions, it's out of love and not trying to earn anything. This is the freedom we have in Christ, church. Let us take hold of this by faith. Amen.